Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. This morning, if you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Luke 9, we'll pick up in verse 18, and we'll take all the way through verse 36. We're actually looking at two separate vignettes in the life of the Lord Jesus and with the disciples. The first one is so important to us because it is the question. It is the question that everyone is going to have to answer someday. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, whether you know the Lord or don't know the Lord, this question one day you will have to answer. And prayerfully you can answer it on this earth and answer it affirmatively. Who do you say that Jesus, the Son of Man, is? You see, a vast majority of people on this earth believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Islam Hinduism teaches that he was a prophet. But there are those of us who believe that he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, he's the great I am, he's the savior of the world. He's more than a prophet. He's the conquering king. He's the answer to the things that are plaguing us as a nation, as a world today. That he alone has the keys to heaven. And so as we meet up with Jesus and the disciples, Peter, you, I, learn to discern his deity. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your own son to this wretched earth to die for our sins that we might live with you eternally. We thank you for that sacrifice, and Jesus, you came putting off the glories of heaven as the rightful deed holder to this earth. You descended from the glories of heaven to a manger in Bethlehem. You walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem. You spent time with the common people in Galilee so that we might all be able to identify with you, putting off your regal splendor and taking on the body of flesh. But Lord, you were never anything other than God. And so we worship you, pray that your word would come alive to our hearing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18 here in Luke's Gospel in chapter 9. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them, saying, and notice the question, who do the crowds say that I am? It's a great question. But the personal question comes next. And so they answered and said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, 
Uh, Others say you're one of the old prophets that's risen again. And he said to them, he said to the disciples, well, that's really not what I asked. You, You see, what the world thinks about Jesus is not the question. The question is, what do you think about Jesus? But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God, the anointed one, the Messiah, Mashiach. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. People have often asked, why would Jesus say such a thing after clearly the right response by Peter? It wasn't time for the word to get out yet. There's a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. From God's perspective, there is perfection in view. God knows exactly what he wants to do and when he wants to do it. And verse 23, and then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You might be imagining how the disciples are are thinking of this. They've been following Jesus now for two and a half years. He's approaching the last very small portion of his time here on earth. The disciples are kind of wondering, well, what's going to happen? And he said to them all, he says to you, he says to me, it's not about you getting what you want. It's about us following Christ picking up our cross and following him. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words Of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Who is Jesus to you? The disciples have moved from the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, from the region around Capernaum. They had gone over to Gadara. They had come back. They had moved to Bethsaida, Julius. These little communities there in the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. They've now moved to another day and time. They've taken the journey north, and we know this from Matthew chapter 16. They've moved about 35 miles to a place called Caesarea Philippi. 
Matthew 16, verse 13 says, And when Jesus had come into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, and here's the same message from Matthew's perspective, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, same thing. Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And here's where it becomes a little different and even more interesting to us. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, or Petros, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Who do you say Jesus is? The disciples had moved to Caesarea Philippi, this beautiful city that was the capital of the tetrarchy of Philip, the Hetrarch. And so as Philip is in his little compound there in Caesarea. His three brothers, Herod Antipas, Archelaus, are all in their little regions, divided up the, what we would call Palestine, according to the Romans. And so the Lord had finished a little tour. He'd gone up into Tyre and Sidon on the modern coast of Lebanon. He had been down through the Decapolis, the ten cities, ending up in Scythopolis, which is today known as Bethshean. And he had wandered around in all of what we would call is really the center of modern-day Israel. But now they've gone up north as far as you can go today in Israel. Any further, and you'd be in Lebanon. And in fact, where this story will pick up shortly is actually the border of Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. But he'd gone to this place, it's the headwaters of the Jordan River. And an interesting place exists there because it's, it's in the region of Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel, actually the tallest mountain in the region, about 9,400 feet tall, snows there, it's the location of the only Israeli ski resort, just for a little tidbit of modern-day geography. But Jesus is now with the disciples in this very lush, very rich in history garden area that had been inhabited for centuries. And the reason that we know that is that the foot of Mount Hermon is this plain that is now in, partly in modern-day Syria and partly in Israel. And it's farmland, and it's very fertile because of the Jordan River. And as the Jordan River emerges out of this place that is literally called the Gates of Hades, you see, people often 
misunderstand what Jesus was saying when he says the gates of Hades shall not prevail against you. While it can be taken in a metaphoric way, Jesus and the disciples were standing adjacent to the temple of Pan, which was built by the Greeks for the worship of this God that was half man and half goat. And his temple was set up adjacent to this place where the river Jordan emerged out of a cave, and it was called the Gates of Hades. It was literally considered to be the entrance to the underworld. And people would go to the Temple of Pan, they would make an offering, they would take that offering, walk over to the Gates of Hades, and they would throw their offering into this whirlpool that swirled out of this cave, which was at the time the source of the Jordan River. It's moved slightly downhill today, but the Jordan River literally pops up out of the ground about 100 feet away from this particular spot, used to come out of that cave. And it was believed that if your offering was spit out, that the gods wouldn't receive it. But if it was taken in, that the gods were going to give you an answer to your prayer. And Jesus standing there near this place called the gates of Hades says, guys, you, you know what's going on over here because Philip the Tetrarch built his abode next door, but there's still a Greek temple sitting there and when people go there, they literally believe that that is the entrance to hell. You won't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about making an offering to some false god. The gates of Hades, nor any other thing fabricated by the enemy, will ever stand against the church. You see, as Peter hears these words, he's encouraged, but at the same time, he's frightened because Jesus has just told him he's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised again. And so as Jesus makes this final circuit around the countryside, and he'd been to the south and traveled to Beth Shean, and here's the city that comprises this hill that uh, if you go to the top of it, there's actually an Egyptian monument on top. It had been inhabited for a thousand years. By the time Jesus showed up, Saul and his sons were hung. Their bodies slung over the wall of this particular city when they were murdered. It was there in that theater that Jesus no doubt had stood and marveled at the crowds theater that today still can hold 5,000 people. Jesus had finished his journey and he was about to head to Jerusalem. He'd been everywhere. He'd seen every type of people. He'd performed countless miracles. He'd raised the dead more than once. He'd healed all manner of sickness driven out demons. He fed the 5,000. He calmed the storm. There was nothing else for Jesus 
to do except die and be raised again. And it was that that was the most offensive to the disciples. And it's the reason that we come to this passage and we find Jesus now praying. He didn't need to raise another person from the dead. That had been done. Didn't need to feed another group that didn't have food. That had been done. All these miracles that had attested to who he is, Jesus could now say, what more do I need to do? And that's where it touches you today. That's where it touches us today. Jesus has done all that needs to be done. The question is, who do you believe he is? Who do you say that he is? Because with him, the gates of hell will not prevail against you either, but without him, the gates of hell will prevail against you. You will not be able to stand. People today are wondering, when is all of this going to end? What's going to happen with what we're going through? For the believer, the end of the story is glory. For those of you that don't know him, maybe you're listening right now and you don't know Jesus personally. The end of your story is Hades. And you may be saying you don't want to hear that. Don't tell me about hell. Well, we're seeing a little bit of hell on earth right now. And I believe that the Lord is actually exposing the weakness of humanity. He's showing us exactly how prevailing evil can be. So that he might be first in line for us to turn to. You see, you have to make that choice. You have to make the choice the disciples made. We see five things here. First thing we see is Jesus in prayer. Church, I have to tell you, I think the the church itself has largely become prayerless. We're so caught up in doing things that we forget that we need to talk to the one who created all things. That by him and through him were all things that were created. Without him was nothing created that was created. And in fact, they're all for him, including us. And instead of reaching out to him for answers, we're reaching out to the world. We're seeking to find solutions to problems that only God can solve. Maybe it's a time for the church to return to what Jesus practiced so often. We find Luke recording seven times Jesus himself in prayer. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you think we as the church need to pray? If he needed to talk to Father God about the situation that he was in, how much more so do you think we need to pray? So we see Jesus in prayer. Luke then turns to the the person of Jesus. And I want you to notice that the answer was immediate with regard to who the people thought Jesus was. John the Baptist, one of the long dead prophets. People had seen him. They saw what he did. They heard him speak, all of those things. They saw the miracles, the incontrovertible things that Jesus had done. He was incomparable in that sense. And so they attributed it to the likes of John the Baptist or Elijah. 
but he was way more than that. I have people all the time saying, well, I actually like Jesus. And I'll ask them, do you know Jesus? They say, well, what do you mean? He wants you to be in fellowship with him. He wants to be your savior. He wants to be your Lord. He doesn't just want you to know about what he did. It does you no good. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be able to say, well, I knew what Jesus did. You're going to have to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the entrance exam to heaven. You want to know what it takes to get in, that's it. Knowing Jesus personally. And so Peter speaks up about who the person of the Lord is. He takes up that position that Jesus gave us, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's what you know in your heart that you profess with your mouth. And Peter says, you are the Christ. Christ of God. You're the long-awaited Messiah. And it seems as though the Lord accepted that profession of faith. You're right, Peter. A third thing that we can see here is the passion or or passion week in view, if you will, of the Lord. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem next. And so Jesus himself says here in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be slain. And you can almost imagine the disciples, when they hear that, they're going to say, what? Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. You, you, uh, we must have misunderstood that. You can almost see him in the background going, well, could you kind of repeat what you said? Because I'm not sure we got that. Not in their wildest imagination, I don't believe that any of them actually thought that Jesus was going to have to die. He's the Christ. And you can imagine some of them thinking back through their time in synagogue. As a rabbi had read from Isaiah 52, 53, the chastisement for our peace would be placed upon him. By his stripes we would be healed. And all of a sudden they began to think, he's really going to have to die. He's going to have to give up his life. What could the Sanhedrin actually do to Jesus after all? Were they really going to be able to come against him? They're probably thinking in their minds, you know, these guys are pretty powerful. Maybe we should just not go to Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. I got this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Does he have power over life and death? Is he king of kings, lord of lords? Is he he the Christ of God? Because if he is, then he's the only one. And he is. That's why scripture is clear. That's why Jesus said, 
I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one, not a single person, no one comes to God except through me. Church, I think we've lost some of the impact of this message. No one gets to heaven without Jesus. No one does. And sometimes we treat Jesus like an additive. It's like we have church and a little bit of Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no church. It's Jesus that prevails in us. It's Jesus that's the answer. He is the Christ. The church is not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And I think the church is being sifted right now. It's being winnowed. We are being tossed into the air. We are being refined. Maybe it's what needs to happen right now. A fourth thing we see is the Lord's perspective on all of this. The disciples kind of take an immediate step back. You, you might be thinking to themselves, and remember at this time, Judas is still in the group. He's still bearing the money bag, whatever's in it. And basically, they just got informed, well, you're not getting 12 thrones. You're not going to sit and judge the children of Israel you're going to have to give up your life. You're going to have to pick up your cross. You're going to have to follow me, and I'm going to go die, by the way. That's why Jesus said what he said. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. There's no following Jesus without denying self. It can't be done. You you have to give up who you are and pick up who he is. That's the way it works. So often I, I have people come to me, well, as long as I can keep this, this, and this, just don't ask me to give up that. I want to keep this relationship. I want to keep this habit. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't follow me unless you're willing to give up everything. Now, the good news is he may not ask you to give up everything, but he's telling you you have to be willing to give up everything. There was a cross for Jesus, and there was a cross for the disciples. And you can imagine Judas sitting there thinking, hmm, I'm not sure I want any part of this. The Lord's basically saying, look, I'm heading to Jerusalem to die, and you all are going to die too. And so Jesus tells him, look, there's two roads. There's one that leads to Hades, and there's one that leads to heaven. In other words, there's two destinations. You're going to live eternally. The only question is where. There's two kinds of life. There's a life lived for you and there's a life lived for him. There's two realities. There's a reality of this life or there's a reality of the next life. Eternal life. You see, once you settle some of these questions, then the main question comes into view. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? You see, ultimately, when we get to heaven, 
I'm not going to be standing at the front of the line going, oh yeah, they know Jesus. My children know Jesus. My wife knows Jesus. My friend knows Jesus. No, you're going to have to answer that question yourself. There's no groupthink involved here. There's no social agenda here. And it's time for that reality to be made known. Because I think a lot of people believe in salvation by organization. Well, I go to church. My mom has been a lifelong Methodist. I mean, we've been Baptist for 14 generations. My aunt's uncle's cousin once went to church, so I'm going to heaven. Do you know Jesus personally? That's the question. It's a very simple one. And it has to be answered very simply. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You're God's own answer, own son, single son. That's why Jesus said, whoever's ashamed of me and my words. Notice what Jesus says here. The son of man, I'll be ashamed of him, her. There's ins and outs, there's saints and ain'ts, there's nobody else. There's sheep, there's goats. There's wheat, there's tares. That's why Jesus used this type of thinking so frequently and often to talk about the world that we live in and the people that are here. There's no almost kind of sort of saved people. There's no purgatory. You don't get a chance after you die to make a different decision. Jesus is setting the dividing line. We're going to talk about that next time. Judas was in grave peril at this point because he was going to have to make a decision. He was going to have to decide. You're going to miss it? You're going to make it. The fifth thing that I see is the Lord's promise. He says, I I tell you that there are some standing here. You're going to see the Lord's glory before you go home. And that's actually the next study for next week. The promise is for those who know the Lord and love the Lord, you're going to see his glory. I am expecting to see the regal glory of Jesus Christ one day. And whether that's we get caught up in the air and I see him in the air or whether I die and go to heaven and I see him there, I am going to see the glory of the Lord one day. That's the promise to those who love the Lord. And so in order to illustrate this, Jesus then, about eight days after these things, verse 28 says, takes them to a mountaintop where he is transfigured. He demonstrates his deity to them. He says, you need to choose. You need to make a decision. Who do you say that I am? And just in case there's any little bit of, you know, thing in your mind that says, I'm not really sure, he's going to take Peter, James, and John, 
and he's going to take them to a mountaintop. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things, verse 28 says, that he took Peter and John and James and went to the mountain to pray again. He's praying, and as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. Interesting word, it's heteros. It's not alos. In other words, it's a different thing. It's not the same thing. It wasn't like all of a sudden he just kind of looked better. He looked different. Like the difference between a man and a woman. We still believe in this church there is a difference between the two genders. His face was heteros. It was different. And his robe became white and glistening, and behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine this scene? Now, I want you to notice something. It's an interesting thing. Moses died. He was buried on Mount Nebo. Bible reminds us the angels dug a grave for him there on that mount, and they buried him. So he's in Sheol, the abode of the dead. But Elijah never tasted death, so he went straight to the glory of the Lord. So you have Elijah coming from heaven, and you have Moses coming from Hades. And they converge on this mount. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Can you, what a, would you like to have been in on that conversation? Moses comes from Sheol. Elijah comes from heaven. And they're talking to Jesus on the earth about what's about to happen to him. I said, well, you know, what do you think? You know, it's not, we don't know. We, we're not clued in. But we know what they were talking about. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And in usual fashion, not knowing what he said, Peter again sticks his foot right smack dab in his mouth. It's like, this is awesome. We'll build a tabernacle. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fear, fearful as they entered the cloud. In other words, this cloud descends on the mountaintop, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. God speaks. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things that they had seen. So Luke undoubtedly gets this report much after the fact. Jesus is meeting with these guys on a mountain. We don't know which mountain, whether it was Mount Hermon or whether it was Mount Tabor or Mount Miron, which is kind of between the two. Most likely it was Mount Hermon. It's the tallest mountain in the region. It's certainly much closer to Caesarea Philippi than Mount Tabor. But Jesus is transfigured. This is the passage that we normally call the transfiguration. Jesus showing in his, in his raiment, if you will, he's altered. His, his clothing begins to glisten. And it is, it is a type of glistening that's not natural. 
This isn't like Jesus just all of a sudden, you know, had better light shining on him. It's like we were joking before service, you know, I need to get some makeup, get rid of my age spots. And it wasn't that. No, he became something else. It wasn't because the lighting was good. It was because the light of eternity was now shining through him. And so he meets with these two long-gone prophets, Moses up from the grave and Elijah from the glories of heaven, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets, the, the basic divisions of what the Jewish people had been told about God himself. And basically, Jesus is saying, we got this. I just wanted you to know, so Peter, John, James, you're going to get to see something that nobody else is going to get to see. And in doing so, he was basically saying, look, my death is not going to be an accident. If I can bring back Elijah, if I can bring back Moses, He's he's going to say, the Romans aren't in charge, I am. The rabbis are not in charge, I am. The human rabble that was around him, not in charge, I am. Jesus was fully in charge. So I want you to know this. You all know that Elijah, we, we set a place setting every Passover. When I want to talk to him, I just call him back. You revere Moses, he, he's the one that you think led you across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, brought you the Ten Commandments, gave you the law itself, the great lawgiver, child's play. I brought him back from Sheol. No problem for me. Jesus was in charge. We're witnessing the absolute divinity of Christ. That's why the veil would be torn in the temple. That's why the earth would shake at his death. That's why he sovereignly dismisses his spirit. He says, Father, into into thy hands I commit my spirit. Nobody took it from him. The oddest thing in all of this is that it seems as though Peter and James and John seem to have slept through most of it. And I've often wondered why that is, and I actually think that in some ways it's just simply they couldn't have handled it. Peter was already fairly lifted up with pride anyhow. Can you imagine if he'd actually seen the glory of the Lord? He would have probably had his his own autographed clay tablets of himself. I saw the glory of the Lord. That's why he says it's good for us to be here. Still talking is normal nonsense. Let's build some tabernacles. Let's build the church up here. The fact that nobody could get to it didn't seem to matter to Peter. But after all this stuff dies away, the disciples have headed back down the mountain. Whether they were translated or walked, we don't actually know. Seems as though they may have been translated. They may have just simply been moved by the Holy Spirit. The Lord just stands there alone. 
Jesus is about to head to Jerusalem. God, wrapped in humanity, stands on the mountain with his father. Who is Jesus to you? That's still the question. For me, he's fully God. He's fully man. He's the Savior. You know, the gospel is so simple, it really is as simple as the ABCs themselves. We have to admit that we're sinners. It's the whole concept that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 3, that there's none righteous, not one, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death in chapter 6, but God wants to give us the free gift of life. I have to admit that I need that. I have to also be, believe, I have to believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is the answer to that problem. That's why it was so important that Peter believed. The disciples believed. Notice they didn't go to school. They didn't go to church. They had a personal relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Boy, Paul in Romans chapter 4 says he was delivered to death for our sins, not for his own. Why in chapter 5 he says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I have to believe. What do you believe? And thirdly, I have to confess. I have to call on Christ. I have to say with my mouth, I believe. That's confession. You see, I can know something in my mind and never confess it with my lips. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Exactly what Paul wrote to the church at Rome in chapter 10. That everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are the ABCs. You have to admit, you have to believe, you have to confess. And to do so places you into God's family. If you haven't done that, we have pastors online right now. They would love to pray with you. Would love to share what I just shared with you again if you need to hear it again. Because that's the reason that Jesus came to this earth. That's the reason he put off his glory and came to this earth as a man. That's the reason he didn't walk around in that glory. That's the reason he walked around in human flesh. That's why he was Emmanuel, God with us, one of us, born in a manger and would die on a cross. And I pray if maybe there's someone watching with you. Maybe you had somebody come over to your watch party and they're, they're sitting there and maybe they have that look on their face right now. What do I do with this? You have to admit, you have to believe, you have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the only way to be saved. I pray you do that today. Don't miss the opportunity because no matter what happens in this world, if you've made that decision, your eternity is secure. 
That's why Jesus said, what profits it a man to gain this whole world and then he himself be destroyed? That's the two roads. That's the two destinations. That's the two paths, two choices. And I pray that you make the one choice to follow Jesus. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. And Lord, for me, I've, I've admitted, many of us, most of us that are listening right now probably have admitted, and we believe in our heart that Jesus, you died for us. That was the whole plan all along. And we confess, Lord, that you, in fact, are our king. You're our savior. You're our Lord. We've asked you, invited you into our lives to forgive our sin and write our name in the Lamb's book of life. And Lord, we believe with all of our heart that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we pray that you're in the process right now by the Holy Spirit of saving the lost that are listening, the lost that will listen later. Those that don't know you, Lord, they'd make that choice. They would not make the choice that Judas made, which he heard the truth and turned from the truth. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy on us. Lord, transform us, renew us, and use us for your glory. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.